Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hello there, Baha'i Blogcast listeners. It's been a little while. Apologies. Uh, It's been a little dry on the uh, podcast front, but we're going to make up for it. Uh, Sitting right now in almost a cabin in the woods in uh, a a remote little area outside of White Salmon, Washington, where the 25th anniversary of the Windstock Baha'i Youth Conference is happening. This is an incredible youth conference second time i've been here i was here eight years ago well we're going to talk a little bit more about that but luckily i was here at the windstock conference and uh, got to see someone whose work i greatly admire dr michael carlberg why do i have a hard time saying your name dr michael carlberg it's a hard name to pronounce it's a lot of so Let me give you a little introduction. Michael Carlberg, for those of you who don't know, is the author of Beyond the Culture of Contest, fantastic book that I've referenced a couple of times in some other conversations with people here uh, on the podcast. And he's a professor of communications studies at Western Washington University, a longtime Baha'i, a Canadian originally, but we won't hold that against him. He's also written several children's books, including... Ruth Sees a Truth. Is that right? Ruth That's right. Uh, that one I'm saying right. A, a, a truly uh, a fascinating thinker, kind of breaking new ground in uh, kind of how I would describe it as like looking at the Baha'i faith from a more sociological perspective about, about systems and uh, a revolutionary way of kind of changing the world, how Baha'u'llah's system that he's kind of is nascent now, but putting into place is is world transforming and completely revolutionary in its scope. So welcome to the show, Dr. Michael Carlberg. Thanks, Rain. Thanks for having me and, and call me Michael. Okay, good. I'm not going to call you Dr. <laughs> Michael Carlberg every time I refer to you. So Michael, I would love to hear a little bit about your background uh, as a Baha'i. I don't know your story at all. Uh, you said uh, earlier in the conference, and we were talking, and by the way, I do want to hear your take on Windstock, because I know you've been many, many times, but what what's your story? You said that you were kind of developmentally disabled spiritually uh, for a, a good chunk of your life, a period of your life, and kind of were slow to come around to the Baha'i faith, even though you, you grew up a Baha'i. So, so where does where does the story start? Well, interesting. I went to the very first meeting, a sort of introduction of the Baha'i faith with my mother. And it was Marzia Gale speaking, a, wow. a very gifted Baha'i transla- you know, translator from the original Arabic and Persian into English. And um, yeah, so, but I was listening through uh, the wall of her womb. <laughs> but that was her very first meeting. And oh, she was okay. pregnant with me. Okay, okay. <laughs> So we, uh, our, our contact with the faith was the same, the same day. But she embraced the faith within a couple of years and really threw her time and energy into it. She's an incredible servant of the cause for decades. Uh, served as an auxiliary board member and many other capacities. And what's her name? Uh, Kathy Resch. Okay. 
It took me about 19 years to sort of figure it out. So yeah, I was joking earlier. I was sort of developmentally delayed in that regard. I was around the Baha'i faith, but you know, it took me a while. Okay, because I said disabled, so yeah. delayed is a much better <laughs> term, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it was pretty much when I went off to college and started really, uh, I think, exploring the world on my own terms and in, in deeper ways and grappling with the big questions out there mm-hmm. that I eventually found my way back to investigating this, this faith and, and embracing it. So when you were in high school and you were a kid, you just were like, you went to some feasts or some, you know, a few uh, prayer gatherings, but you're like, ah, it's just not for me or. Yeah. By high school, I wasn't even doing those things. I had, it was pretty arm's length. I was uh, really engaged in a lot of the self-destructive behaviors a lot of youth engage in in this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it took me a while to work, work all that out of my system. And so, was there a transformative event? What so? What exactly happened in college? So, was there a meeting you went to? A book you read? A, a thing that happened? Your personal thing that happened in your life? Probably a lot of small things. Right at the end of high school, I actually had a dream that was uh, basically a near-death experience, um, and it profoundly moved me and gave me a lot of confidence that there's something much greater out there. Uh, and I also went, I went in, uh, first thing after high school, I immersed myself in an apprenticeship learning how to make stringed instruments, acoustic guitars. I worked very intensely in a shop for a year. I mean, that's literally all I did, 70 hours a week. And um, it was a time to reflect and, and sort of regain my bearings. And I think it also had an impact on just sort of hitting a reset button for me. Yeah. Can you tell us more about the dream? The dream? Yeah. So uh, in the dream, I basically died in a car crash and found myself there wondering what to do next, sort of looking at my body, this like out of body sort of perspective on my dead body in the car. And as I started to try to figure out the implications of like what I do next, so to speak, um, and how do I detach from a sort of embodied understanding of myself? I had an experience where the only way to describe it is like uh, if you put a drop of black ink in a bowl of pure water and watch it sort of diffuse out. This was the experience I had, but but then it started to retract back on itself, and I started to sort of come back into my, I guess, embodied self. And then I pushed harder to try to experience this more deeply, and. I guess you could say I made it farther. It was profoundly moving. I wanted more. I wanted to go in that direction, so to speak. But I didn't have the strength. And so I started sort of coming back. (laughs) And this time I came back into being awake. Um, And as I woke, I realized, I mean, it was really obvious to me that I had almost left, but that I somehow didn't have the strength or the ability to go yet. It wasn't my time but it gave me a taste of something very real. I can still sort of palpably sort of bring that that experience back in a certain way. Wow. Um, I had a, it's funny that you mentioned that. I had a vaguely similar, uh, wasn't as profound for me, but a dream when I was around 19 years old too, where um, I uh, had a, a dream where I just was in another kind of landscape. I don't know how to describe it, but it really felt like I was in the next world. 
and I was flying and I came over these kind of mountains and there were just thousands of birds, kind of like ducks or geese or something like that, kind of scattering in front of me on these giant green hills. And all I, my, my experience was that I experienced it as love, as pure love, like the light of the sun was just, and I felt an intense and purity of love like I've never felt before or since yeah. in this yeah. dream. And I was like, and it was, it was great. I didn't feel like, oh, I was dying or was I going somewhere or something like that. But it, it was like uh, an, an experience of love Almost like when you sit in the hot sun and the rays of the sun are on you, like only that's love instead of heat and light. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think these experiences, sometimes even in dreams, can really sort of shift our perspective, our consciousness in certain ways. It can be very profound. Absolutely. So take us from there. So you made a bunch of stringed instruments. What did you make, like zithers or something? Uh, or? Guitars. I, I made a lyre at one point, some electric and acoustic guitars, some uh, resonator guitars. All right. I played a little slide guitar, so I made a couple of those. All right. All right. Excellent. And then you started going to college. Yeah. Started so how does, how do, how do you take us from you making the zithers, you have this dream, how do then do you tiptoe into the Baha'i faith at that point? Well, I started realizing there was something deeper out there I needed to explore, just this sort of spiritual dimension of my life. I started reading lots of different things from different, you know, texts, Buddhist, Hinduist. Do you remember any specific titles that... Oh, the Bhagavad Gita, for uh -huh. instance. Mm -hmm. uh, I started reading a little bit from the Quran. I remember I walked into a mosque and told them, tell me, tell me about your thing here. And, and uh, the imam was quite surprised see some young white kid walking off the street asking and he, he sent me home with a leather bound copy of the Quran. he was so happy to see me I think anyways I, I was reading all sorts of things and finding truth in all of them but there was a way in which none of them seemed adequate to the needs of the day that we live in and so at one point I realized you know I really got to uh, look deeper into the Baha'i faith. I've been around it my life. I've sort of had it at arm's length. And so I started reading, you know, Baha'i books. And Do you remember specific ones that I gave you a specific one, experience? Well, I think the first thing, I went to the public library in Phoenix, Arizona. That's where I was living. And I, I think I got a copy of the Kitabi gone. So that was like, you know, both feet in. And it was profound. It took me a while to sort of make sense of and uh, but I could see there was something very deep there and then I started attending some Baha'i meetings the first Baha'i meeting I attended was in 1985 it was a study of the promise of world peace the House of Justice had just written so it was also uh, really struck a chord with me it just spoke to the sort of contemporary application of these eternal spiritual truths that you find in, in every religious yeah, tradition yeah I recently had the Someone asked me, oddly enough, to do a fireside on the promise of world peace. I'm not exactly sure why, because it's almost like with the last letter from the Universal House of Justice, mm -hmm. it's kind of like now the, the promise of world peace is almost like obsolete, you know? They'll be studying it hundreds of years from now, but with the words, so be it, in the last letter, I forget the date of the last yeah, letter. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's pretty obvious that humanity has not chosen its potential path to peace. We're taking the hard way. And we're taking the hard road. But it was, it was great to be able to dive back into it and, and do a deep, uh, intensive study. Um, 
Yeah. That's great. And then did you always know you wanted to be a professor or in academia no, or how no. did how did that path go? It took me a long time. You know, I went after becoming Baha'i, I went to serve at the Baha'i World Center as a gardener for a year and a half. Really there, I guess, immersed myself deeply and learned about the value of sort of studying more deeply the revelation. And then I came back and I did an environmental studies degree and I taught high school for a year. And uh, I realized that takes a certain kind of gift. I became very interested in uh, how the media was really shaping the worldview of my students. So I went to graduate school, studied media studies, and through a long story, kind of fell into an academic position that I, I hadn't initially set out to pursue. What were you seeing about media? Because that is one of my, that's when I work. Yeah, you in work media, in the field. Obviously. Well, I mean, so for instance, I was teaching environmental studies at a high school level, and almost everything my students thought they knew about the natural world, they had learned from television. I mean, at the time, it was a television generation. Many of these students had very little direct experience or understanding of natural systems and, you know, the natural world. And uh, they had gotten what they've gotten from documentaries or a few news clips or, you know, these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So I just saw the way media can mediate our perceptions of reality in profound ways. It's, and when I went to study it then, I was studying it also as actually studying from the standpoint of our media environment. You know, we live, it's like a layer of the environment in which we live. Hmm. Um, so if our media environment is healthy or polluted or, you know, we can think about the health of our, and integrity of our media environment in, in ways that, that are worth reflecting on. How is it affecting us? But also how are we affecting it? Because it, it's an interactive relationship, obviously. And even more so now with social media and so you've, you've been studying this field for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, what can you share about the effects of media and how we need to rethink media, especially as Baha'is or as people on a, some kind of spiritual path? Yeah, it's a big topic for sure. And one thing we need well, to you've avoid 12, is... You've yeah, got 12 yeah. minutes. So. <laughs> yeah. no, you know, just... We need to avoid, obviously, simplistic ideas about media effects. It's not some sort of direct stimulus response effect. But... You know, again, it's part of our environment. So if there are recurrent images, patterns, messages that we're exposed to on a daily basis or weekly basis in the media, they become normalized. So, for instance, you know, if most of the images of most of the representations of human behavior and human nature we see in the media, if they are basically self-interested people, you know, competing for scarce resources or status or power, these sorts of things, you know, in a Game of Thrones sort of way or, yeah. or but I mean, that's in, in all sorts of different ways, right? If those are the representations of human nature that we are surrounded by in our media environment, those are going to shape how we view human nature, you know, what we expect of other people, how we behave towards other people. And so that's an example. It's not that it's just sort of programming us, but it's normalizing certain sort of assumptions about human nature in our minds. So that would be an example. The media can normalize or naturalize certain ways of thinking about the world that sometimes can be very helpful, but also sometimes not. Right. I, sometimes when I, when I speak to youth and I talk about the individual investigation of truth, I think, you know, what that, I mean, there's, there's a big discussion that could happen about you know, what Baha'u'llah actually meant by the individual investigation of truth in terms of like discovering the manifestation for that day. But 
the individual investigation of truth at the turn of the you know the 20th century was very very different than it is now yeah so then it was uh, finding the truth for yourself separate from your family mm-hmm. separate from your tribe you know if you're you know, your grandfather was, you know, a dairy farmer, then your dad was a dairy farmer. Are you going to be a dairy farmer and go yeah. to the same Methodist church? And you have to find your truth outside of that, those parameters. Yeah. But I feel like in this day and age, it's less and less about that. That still exists in some places in the world, obviously. But in the Western world, it seems to be a little bit more about investigating the truth that the media packages mm-hmm. for the young person mm-hmm. in a different way. Absolutely. Because there's all these insidious things that the media does. Like, for instance, the media itself is there for constant distraction. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I was lucky to be on a really terrific TV show. That's that's awesome. People love the show. They compliment me on it. I was able to buy a house. It's great. But I run into kids that have seen the show, you know, 8, 10, 12, 15, 20 times. That's 200 episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it. So that's a thousand hours. And they're, um, so there's this, and this is okay now. Binge watching is like, is is de rigueur. It's like, it's just fine to be like, oh, I spent the entire weekend binge watching The Sopranos from beginning to end. It's like, and people are like, oh, that's cool. That's great. Like it's, it's, it's normalized, but we have these phones in our pockets and we can take out and it's instant distraction. There's a there's a game. There's a video to watch. There's a reward system. Our dopamine systems are getting hit. Yep. And uh, so part of what a young person needs to do in terms of the individual investigation of truth is to look, to really look with a hard, cold, detached eye at like, what am I being sold? What is the bill, what is the bill of goods I'm being sold? Mm-hmm. You mentioned one of them, that humans are in constant kind of competition for limited scarce resources, seeking power and status and prestige. But it's also like the fact that media is is everywhere and that it's something to just be reached for the second you're bored. I, I heard someone say that kids these days don't don't know what boredom is. They, and, and, and that, that Until might- Until they're away from their- Screens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And because you have this instant boredom fighter thing in your pocket. And, uh, you know, when we were growing up in the 70s or 80s, like being bored was just part of, I imagine sometimes you're making those, your zithers and your slide guitars and just like, oh my God, this is so, so crushingly boring. And we had to like wait for our parents and wait in the back of cars. And, you know, maybe we're lucky if we had a book there, but... You know, this increase of anxiety and depression, uh, I think, is so linked to the fact that no one is bored, that our our discomfort. Oh, I feel discomfort. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to pull out my device, my screen and my discomfort will go away. But it doesn't really go away. It's just got to put a Band-Aid on it. So all of a sudden you're in their 20s and that deep discomfort starts to be uh, it's a much more unsettling kind of unsettled kind of thing deeper inside that screens can no longer soothe and medicate. Yeah, and, and they can be very social isolating. I mean, ultimately, humans find meaning and happiness in life from social relationships, our interactions with people, meaningful you know, contributions to other people and their happiness. And if we're isolated behind our screens, it's, it's a source of loneliness and depression, like this growing body of evidence showing this. And then also, as you mentioned earlier, if you're 
spending thousands of hours engaged with media, any one of those hours is not necessarily a bad thing, but it ultimately is in a cumulative way distracting you from other meaningful pursuits. Sure. So that's that in itself is a media effect that you can think about it. But it's again, it's not like some stimulus response, like show someone a message and they hop up, run down the street and, you know, buy a burger or something like that. Like the media are subtle but profound in, in the way they shape. So also with social media, I think our impulse as humans to connect with one another is assuaged by use of social media, mm-hmm. but it's not a real connection. It's a false connection. So, but you feel like, oh, I'm connecting with people. I'm liking their posts. I'm commenting. We're interacting. We're, we're sharing text messages on Snapchat, whatever. I feel more connected to my group on a kind of on a superficial level, but it, but it's not a, it's not a true connection. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, and it's a double-edged sword, obviously, like with social media, it's a powerful tool for certain kinds of organizing. And certainly media today is a powerful way to access certain you know bodies of knowledge. And, but yeah, it has to be uh, thought about carefully. And, and collectively, it's even more challenging to think collectively about what sort of paths do we want our sort of media, like developmental paths for media. What sort of funding models, you know, who's driving, what were the motives for, for actually the development and propagation of apps and programming and these things. And it's a deep conversation that we need to start having about both, you know, our individual engagement with media, but also our collective sort of use of media. How do we, how do we foster reflection on media at the community level and on its sort of developmental paths? So part of what the Baha'is do is these junior youth spiritual empowerment programs where, you know, pre-teens and pre-teens are studying uh, these books, they're playing games, they're doing sports, and they're also doing service projects. And our local group that our son is in, we really wanted them to consult about what's the best service that, to offer our community, which mm-hmm. is kind of like a lily white upper middle class suburb of Los Angeles. And um, uh, what they came up with was uh, an evening called Unplugged. And they've done a couple of these now, which is about the dangers of social media, the dangers of screens, things nice. you can do besides screens. Nice. And they're, they're offering this as a service. And they, they did presentations and they, you know, each has a different, you know, section that, yeah. they, that they give. So, you know, you think about kids like cleaning up the beach or, or petting yeah. kittens at the at the... Humane Society, but this was a real service project that... Big need. Big uh, yeah, need. big big need, this conversation. But like I was saying earlier about the youth, um, the individual investigation of truth is so many truths filtered from the media about uh, popularity will make me happy, um, buying stuff will make me happy, increased status will make me happy. Um, this is how people... This is how people are. They're this way on YouTube. They're unboxing these videos. Um, Stereotypes of different groups that we're still receiving from all sorts of media sources. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So where is your work right now in terms of the the media studies? Where is your work taking you? Well, I mean, you know, one, one topic I've just finished a manuscript on, it's not directly media studies, but it's really in some ways engaging this sort of post-truth moment that we live in. And uh, how, do, how do we reconcile 
the relativism that's so widespread in the world today with the existence of an objective reality. You know, we do live in a universe that has certain laws and features and facts. And uh, so I've been, one of the themes I've been exploring recently is, you know, how do we actually reconcile truth and relativity? Because both of these are important aspects of how we understand reality. So tell me more what you mean by truth and relativity. Just like, sure. So like God, like there is a God versus I don't feel that there is a God, so there isn't a God for me. Kind yeah, of that kind of thing. Well, uh-huh. I mean, it could be. Those are not the sort of questions that I'm focused on, like theological sort of questions so much. But where I think the the difficult conversation has to happen is around values. Like, you know, it, do we live in an anything world? anything goes world where anybody's values is as good as anybody else's, where there are no ethical or guiding principles, no spiritual truths. Is it all just completely relative? We just construct them in our own minds or in our own cultures? Or or are there values or spiritual truths that are in some some way foundational, which, which is something that I believe to be true, but even if one accepts that premise, we still can accept the possibility that we bring diverse perspectives to our understanding of those. There is a certain form of relativity in terms of how we understand, interpret, and try to apply, you know, ethical truths or what academics would call normative truths. Um, And even more so, there's relativity in terms of how do we build social constructs, social institutions, social relationships, social practices that embody moral, spiritual, or ethical truths to varying degrees. So there are ways, I'm you know, arguing in this manuscript I just wrote, it's a book that's under review right now for publication, that we can think about the relative embodiment of normative truths in social reality. And, and let me give you a more concrete example because this is pretty Good. abstract. <clears throat> so you know, if you think about most social movements, have been trying to, for instance, increase the embodiment of justice in the world. Yeah. The abolition movement, the suffrage movement, civil rights movement, you know, environmental movements, labor movements. Even Black Lives Matter movements. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. They're trying to increase the sort of the the presence of justice in our social structures and relationships. So one can think about the relative embodiment of justice in different social systems, different social you know, relationships. This, this helps us think both about, okay, maybe there is something foundational we could call justice, and yet our understanding of it can be relative, and the extent to which it's embodied in the social realities we create can be relative. But none of that means it's not real. And the implication is that we can actually struggle to increase the embodiment of justice in the world around us. This is a way of trying to reconcile this sort of, like, perennial tension or debate around, you know, is it all, is it, are there truths or is it all just relative? My argument is it's both. In fact, we need the concept of truth, of foundational truths, and we need to understand the relativity of our perspectives on those truths and of the way we embody those truths in our social, you know, realities. So anyways, that's a project. It's a little abstract probably for a podcast, but <laughs> yeah, you, you lost me about, about half, uh, halfway through there, but that's cool. What, what's it going to be called if it comes out or what's it? 
Uh, I'm still working on the title, but probably something to do with truth and relativity. Okay, very good. So uh, let's go on to your your book that you've already published that is academic but very accessible, and that's Beyond a Culture of of Contest. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about it? Um, I see the kind of the organizing principle is that, you know, competition is seen as the main, the standard way that civilization can and has progressed. And so we're kind of stuck in this mode of seeing contest and competition as a de facto mm-hmm. uh, human nature and the, and the way that uh, society will always be organized around that kind of impetus. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the project started, uh, I've long believed that, that Western civilization itself, despite the remarkable things it's produced and the ways in which it's, uh, well, the contributions it's made, it's founded on some foundationally flawed assumptions, like some really flawed premises. And I think we're starting to see that today. It's just, it's an unsustainable model. Like the conflict, the increasing disparities, wealth and poverty, global warming, like Western civilization has proven incapable of managing the world in like a just, peaceful, and sustainable way. So if that's the case, what are some of the flawed assumptions underneath it? And do you mean capitalism? Uh, The whole sort of capitalist, multi-party democracy sort of package. But I mean, it's deeper than that. It it also goes back to... Well, it's not like the philosophy. It's not like the socialist or even communist governments were any good. No, no. Better stewards of of humans or nature. No, absolutely. And we haven't, you know, so, yeah, we need to basically think about what's the next model. Like, what is, how do we actually move beyond? Well, hence the title of my book, Beyond the Culture Contest. So what I argue is that, you know, at the heart of Western civilization are assumptions about human nature. Basically, this assumption that we're, you know, uh, self-interested animals competing for scarce resources during a short span of life on Earth. And and we do it also in groups, so interest group competition is part of that. And that as a result, uh, the best we can do is organize most social institutions as contests that, in theory, channel all that selfish energy for the greater good. That's the sort of underlying premise behind a lot of Western civilization. So we organize governance as a contest of partisan power. We organize our legal systems as contests of sort of legal legal advocacy. We organize the, the economy as contests of capital accumulation. But even beyond that, we organize education as contests for grades and recognition, and, and almost every form of recreation and leisure we organize as contests. So it goes deep. And I think what we're beginning to see in the world are uh, that model is not serving us well. If it served us well in the past, it's no longer able to meet the needs of a seven and a half billion people with increasing interdependence, wielding increasingly powerful and dangerous technologies on this planet. We need actually to, to move beyond those frameworks of thought. I'm always reminded of it, of the, uh, the movie Wall Street and Michael Douglas saying, greed is good. Greed, for lack of a better word, yeah. is good. Yeah. And what a... That's the culture of contest. Yeah, and it, but it made that ripple effect in, in that movie Wall Street, which is actually a terrific kind of indictment of, of, yeah. of what you're talking Absolutely. about. And <clears throat> along with Glengarry Glenn Ross, I mean, there's, there's been some great plays and, and films that kind of skewer what, what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. 
Um, people intuitively realize there's a problem with this, but people haven't figured out, like, how do we move beyond it? Yeah, but, but that, the idea that greed is good, like, mm-hmm. that it really is founded on greed. It's really competition is just a way to disguise greed or make it more palatable. Yeah, yeah. Um, who, who, he who dies with the most toys wins, kind of. Yeah. Uh, but yet you're right, the, the, in this last century, the advent of the atomic bomb and, and our ability to poison the atmosphere, we, we have to find a, a new system. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, most of the systems we're participating in today were designed, like most of the social, political, economic, you know, legal systems were designed before the invention of the steam engine, let alone the internal combustion engine, the radio, television, the internet, social media, weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass manipulation. Like, none of these systems are adequate for the complexity of the times we live in. There's so many things I want to ask you about, but what kind of response did you get from this book? Well, there are people who love it. It's been pretty widely read and pretty widely cited, but obviously there are people who are, who are like deeply invested in the culture of contest and the ideas and the assumptions behind it, who are uh, not too fond of my argument, not surprisingly. You know, yeah. So certainly I've received uh, pushback and criticisms. But generally speaking, it's been very well received by all sorts of people, young and old. Oh, that's and it's been you know, read in, around the world and it's been translated in a couple of languages. Oh, congratulations. That's, that's really exciting. And, you know, I just want to segue to Winstock because mm-hmm. um, you'll see why in a minute. So tell us about Winstock. What's your history to this youth conference? Switching gears a little bit and we'll get back to uh, culture of contest. Yeah, Winstock. So, you know, gosh, 10, 12 years ago, I forget how long ago, I had a student uh, at Western Washington University where I work, and he was a Baha'i. We uh, spent time together, and he grew up in this little cabin in the Columbia River Gorge, the lower Columbia River Gorge, and he invited me one summer to come down and join his family in this cabin at Winstock, which basically was his family that started this. I came down, I think I brought one or two of my daughters at the, you know, who were kind of of that age, teenagers at the time. And it was uh, just a really beautiful experience. So 70, 80 youth uh, singing, engaging in, you know, collective devotions, exploring really rich, complicated topics. And the, the spirit, the atmosphere was pretty amazing, really impressive. So I've come back a few times over the years. Um, this, I don't know, third or fourth time here, and uh, it just keeps getting better. Yeah, I, I love what you say. Like, So there's there's a couple things about this youth conference, because I went to a bunch when I was growing up, and I've you know, spoken at several, but everyone's camping, mm-hmm. everyone's in tents, yep. so it's, it's three nights, no showers. Yep. You can run a hose over your head from the back of the cabin <laughs> if you want, but there's no showers, That's right. there's porta-potties, yep. And the girls' tents are on the far side, far field, and the boys' tents are on the near side of the field. And, uh, and main classes are held in a big tent. Yep. So there's something about this kind of return to nature and the earth that the youth really respond to. I mean, it's mostly yeah. kind of city kids, but they're, they're kind of thrilled and excited to just be in, in nature. And sometimes it gets muddy. Yep. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it's a beautiful environment, but it's also, it's it's rough in it. It's, uh, you know, last night, 
bunch of kids were out there in their tents, rain pouring down on top of them. Wasn't particularly warm this morning, but it just uh, in ways, I think there's ways in which hardship draws people together. And that's part of the ingredient here in a certain way. And the other thing that really strikes me is that the, the devotions are very intense. They're long. They're very musical. It's mm-hmm. just a lot of singing, mm-hmm. songs and repetitions. Anyone can pick up a guitar, sing a song, sing a prayer, and people just dive in and just their voices are, are echoing. And you had... Uh, yeah. Midnight devotions last night. I skipped. I went to bed, but yeah, they no. had uh, under the under the night cold night stars. Yeah, I, I think Winstock has actually been a, a significant factor contributing to the development of a re- very rich musical culture in the sort of Baha'i youth in the Pacific Northwest. Actually, yeah, and uh, and there's some very strong communities out here in Beaverton and Eugene and Portland, Lake Oswego. Uh, probably fed by what Winstock has offered over the years. Yeah, yeah. And But also, like you said, the classes are very, they're, I hate to say it, they're erudite. I mean, they're, the, from what I've seen the two times I've been here, like, it isn't just kind of like, oh, they're youth, so we should just talk about, you know, what can we do to, you know, talk to our friends about God or make our neighborhoods a, a nicer place or something like that. It's not, it, it's... It's rigorous and intensive thought it's, it's some and deep discussions. Discussion. Yeah, yeah, very deep discussions with so, a lot of very practical applications as well. Yeah, it's a it's it's a beautiful thing. But your class that I've been listening to, I missed a little of it this morning, but it's fantastic. It's this new thing that you're teaching or you're investigating at Western about the history of nonviolent social change, oppression, and justice, and what Baha'is can add to the discussion and what Baha'is can learn from the discussion. There's so much there. We could do a whole podcast just on what this class was, but can you can you t- bring the listeners in on both what you're studying and what you're trying to impart to the teenagers here? Yeah, for a number of years now, I've been immersing myself in the, the sort of literature, philosophy, and practice of nonviolent social change. It's just a rich body of literature. It goes back well beyond Gandhi, actually. Well, he was a major contributor. And the more you study that literature, it just it enables you to see aspects of what the Baha'i community is engaged in, in new ways. You know, really, the Baha'i faith is a global movement focused on profound social transformation, among other things. That was the thing I responded to the most, was the exciting way you're pitching to the youth many of which are not, at least a third are not Baha'is, mm-hmm. that you're pitching to them like, hey, you want to be activists? You want to change the world? Here's mm-hmm. the system that is the most radical and revolutionary of all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I firmly believe that. I mean, you know, the Baha'is have a framework for activism that is truly radical. In the, in the original sense of the word radical, radical means getting to the roots of the problem. And that's really what the Baha'i community is trying to address. And those, those roots run deep. They have to do with our inner you know, spiritual condition and state, but they also have to do with the, the basic structures of society around us, the sort of deep, often invisible structures and the, and the premises they're based on. So, yeah, this is the level at which change needs to happen, both you know, hearts and minds, as well as social structures and and. The Baha'i community is learning increasingly to address 
change at both of those levels within a framework for action that is sort of becoming increasingly sophisticated, complex, nuanced, but is also global and uh, you know united. Like the people are all working towards the same ends. So you know some of the things we've been exploring here are if we think about the ends we're working towards, ultimately they're about peace and justice. You know how do we create unity? How do we translate the Baha'i principle of the oneness of humanity into a new social reality? Organized around the principle of justice, because unity and justice for Baha'is are inseparable, sort of reciprocal principles. So if if we're trying to create a world characterized by unity and justice, we need to we need to struggle, we need to do that work through methods that reflect unity and justice. So our ends and our means are coherent. That's the theme we've been exploring here. What does that mean then? What are the implications? Mm-hmm. We started out by looking at, you know, the, the first obstacle to changing the world is complacency, right? That, that, you know, nothing's going to change. You can't overcome oppression. You can't work for justice from a position of complacency. And you talked about how that is a universal both for Gandhi and for Martin Luther King and for Baha'u'llah. Can yeah. You, can you explain that? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Gandhi... Basically, when Gandhi, you know, his whole life was associated with nonviolence, but Gandhi said in the face of oppression, he'd rather see people be violent than complacent. And I'm not advocating violence, but it shows the depth to which Gandhi was concerned about complacency, right? Martin Luther King said essentially the same thing. He said the biggest obstacle to, to racism in the United States, or to overcoming racism, to, you know, to racial justice in the United States, the biggest obstacle is not the Ku Klux Klan or organized white supremacy. It's uh, moderate white folks who are complacent and sort of watching on the sidelines, as well as complacent uh, black folks who understand the injustice but are you know passive in the face of it. So Gandhi and King were on the same page about this. Complacency is the biggest obstacle. And then you know if we go deeper, we look at the writings of Baha'u'llah, which came a century earlier. Almost every other verse in, in, in his writings is exhorting us to get up off our couch and dedicate our lives the couch to, of to justice. Yeah, as he calls it in some, some cases, the couch of heedlessness. So, you know, Baha'u'llah's whole revelation in many ways is addressed to uh, moving beyond complacency and working and really fun, dedicating ourselves to the transformation of social reality. And, you know, you talk about a culture of contest. Right now, we kind of live in a culture of protest mm-hmm. where we, uh, I think I've spoke about this before on one of these podcasts. I'm always repeating myself. I apologize. You know what? You know what? Too bad. I'm 53 and this is the best you, you've got. So um, <laughs> Join the club. we're in a culture of protest. So we see this so much like, oh, an injustice happens. Oh, there's a protest and there's online. Everyone is... No one really changes their lives. They just kind of shout a lot online and try and get people banned from the right and the left. And, oh, a a perceived injustice. Ah! And it's kind of like the the crowd with torches, you know, chasing Frankenstein. But what you spoke a lot about as well is like, what is it? A constructive program. So Mm -hmm. both... Gandhi in his early years and the Baha'i faith have a constructive program. This isn't just about protest. Protest is important and has its place, but you need to be building the new system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Gandhi, you know, Gandhi is misunderstood and misread. And like 
his major aspects of his life's work are generally ignored in the telling of, of his story. But his primary commitment, his, his fundamental approach to overcoming oppression and injustice was what he called the constructive program. And it meant literally building up a more peaceful and just social order, new patterns of social relationships, new institutions and practices, right within the shell of the violence and oppression surrounding him. In his case, the sort of violence of the, the British Empire in India. And he dedicated the vast majority of his life to that constructive program. Uh, he also then sort of added to that certain forms of contentious you know, resistance, civil disobedience, and these sorts of things, which in Gandhi's mind were a sort of compromise on the constructive program when he wasn't able to mobilize enough people around that constructive program. But he believed if you could really fundamentally you know, rebuild new social order within the shell of the old, you wouldn't need to protest or uh, disrupt or somehow you know, tear down the old order. It would, it would collapse of its own accord as people withdrew their participation. Well, if we back up and look at the teachings of Baha'u'llah, even though he didn't use this term, constructive program, fundamentally that's what he said in motion. This sort of radical rebuilding of a new social order right within the shell of, of the world around us. And Baha'is uh, are, you know, have the sort of mission, so to speak, the mandate, or the, the encouragement of Baha'u'llah to, to stay away from conflict and contention, focus all their time and energy on the sort of radical rebuilding, the reconstruction of society. So that's one way to think about nonviolent social change. And it actually, this approach has roots in the tradition of nonviolent theory, beginning with Gandhi. Although, again, one can trace it back deeper and look at the work of Baha'u'llah or the, you know, the teachings of Baha'u'llah, which basically reflect this idea. You spoke earlier in your class about how some social movements change structures and some change hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. But the Baha'i faith changes both. So can you talk a little about that and then speak about like what is the Baha'i faith specifically doing in terms of this constructive program of social change? Sure. Yeah, so social change has, one could say, two dimensions, changing hearts and minds and changing social structures. Both are needed. A lot of social movements have focused on one or the other. So, you know, communism itself and, and, and most socialist sort of movements have proceeded on the idea that if we just change the structures of society, if we get the structures right, everything else will follow, that, that human goodness will just sort of flourish within these new structures. But the reality is... It doesn't happen. You can change the structures. You still have to deal with what's inside people's hearts and minds. You know, the civil rights movement changed a bunch of structures, Jim Crow laws, but racism was still festering in a lot of hearts and minds, and so it just manifests itself in new ways, morphed into new structures. Um, so other social movements and other kinds of movements have focused on changing the individual. Lots of educational movements, a lot of religious movements focused on like individual conversion and salvation, and other movements that have thought, if you just change enough individuals in the aggregate, everything will be better. But again, it doesn't work that way. You can change a lot of hearts and minds, and if the social structures are still oppressive, they'll continue to oppress people, but they'll also like re-inscribe oppressive modes of being in the hearts and minds. So both need to be changed. And, and Baha'is are working very hard at both of these levels. So we have programs for sort of spiritual education and training of children, adolescents, adults that really are focused on hearts and minds. But we're also building new kinds of institutions. The Baha'i electoral model 
It's a it's fundamentally democratic in in its spirit, but it's entirely without competition. Most people can't even sort of imagine that possibility. And yet the Baha'i community has been working with this for 100 years in every culture on the planet. And we've demonstrated that it's actually possible to conduct elections in which voters have much more freedom of choice than mm. in you know, these yeah. party systems that basically give you a menu of, of usually two, o- two options, yeah. neither of which anybody's very happy about. Like, so you know, the Baha'is have created, just in that one example, a whole new kind of structure of governance, a whole new electoral structure that's a radical sort of move beyond the culture of contest. And that, that's just one example. How does the Ruhi books fit into this? Yeah, so the Training Institute, which originally emerged out of the Ruhi Training Institute in Colombia, and now is this global training institute, it, it, it's, a, it's a decentralized uh, training system that can grow indefinitely. You know, one person gets trained, they can start another uh, study circle and train others, and from those those people can train others. So it's decentralized, able to multiply without any sort of end to encompass you know, people from all around the world. And it is a system by which Baha'is and like-minded people who want to collaborate with Baha'is develop the skills, the qualities, the attitudes, the capacities to contribute to social change in certain ways. And the interesting thing is, if you again, if you go back and look at like, you know, social movement literature, nonviolent, you know, social change literature, any movement that's been successful in any way has had to grapple with the problem of training. So in the civil rights movement in the U.S., people are engaged in very real systematic forms of training, training for certain kinds of civil disobedience, training to, uh, to receive violence with nonviolent responses. Same is true of other movements in other parts of the world that have learned how to do various forms of training. It's essential to social change. You cannot mobilize large numbers of people for social change without some form of training so that people know sort of what the program is, what the principles are guiding it, and how they can take initiative within some sort of coherent and unified framework for social change. It's kind of ingenious what's emerged because you've got the children's classes and you learn in the third Ruhi book how to do the children's classes. And then you've got the junior youth pro- programs that you, you, know, you learn in book five how to do the, uh, the junior youth programs. So you can literally be taking people up from you know, age four or five you know, all the way into their 30s in their adulthood through this pro- program. But there's, uh, there's one program that people don't know that much about called the ISGP, Institute for the Studies of Global Prosperity. Mm-hmm. And I know you've been involved as a collaborator and working on some of those materials. And I think a lot of Baha'is don't know anything about it. So tell us about it and also how it fits into this kind of master program of training that we've been discussing. Sure, I'll try. So yeah, the Institute for Studies in Global Prosperity, it's uh, it's basically a nonprofit organization that's looking at science and religion as complementary systems of knowledge and practice and exploring the implications of that for uh, raising up the capacity of people to contribute to the advancement of thought, to contribute to discourse in societies, among other things. And one of the things they've done is create seminars for university students and uh, recent graduates 
in which students come together once a year, like in the summer for 10, 12 days, study a set of materials, form relationships, really try to think more coherently about the application of spiritual principles to the betterment of humanity in the context of their service in their communities, their studies and their future, you know, career and professional choices and how to how to bring coherence across all those domains of their lives. So it's a very rich program. I, I think it's had quite an impact on a, a whole generation now of young people that's been able to go, go through when that do you, When do you start it? Uh, these seminars began, gosh, probably 10, 12 years ago. But when does a, when does a student oh. start it? So yeah, you know, a student, as soon as they graduate high school, if they're heading to college, they can in the like summer before their first year of college, they can attend one of these seminars and they could come back then the next summer. And they kind of try to move together with a cohort of their peers each year together, sort of accompanying one another Uh through their studies. I mean, some places are offered over winter break instead of the summer, but generally basically once a year, you start your first year, you go all the way through. And then there's a there's a graduate seminar for people who have recently finished, kind of young adults, either who are in graduate school or who are sort of in their early career stage, that they can come and do uh, that graduate seminar as well. Now, I know they, they don't make the materials available. You know, you have to kind of sign up and do the program. What's yeah. the thinking there? Well, the materials really are tools for conversations, like tools for collective exploration. So if you were just to read them on your own, they, they kind of wouldn't make sense because they're, they're about a collective process of inquiry. So I guess you could say it's sort of like making a tool available that people would know how to use or that, that, that isn't, doesn't have a use outside a certain context. Mm-hmm. One of the things you mentioned earlier was that ISGP was a good kind of counter-programming or antidote for a lot of students going into the college experience because the college experience over the last 10 or 20 years has become much more difficult, uh, more toxic. There are uh, certain kind of material, uh, political, social ideas that are really uh, kind of rammed down people's throats and uh, there's a lot of divisiveness on college campuses, both kind of between departments and within departments and between the school and the outside world. So you talked about ISGP being kind of a a nice complement to uh, a very confusing time for Mm. for a young Baha'i kid, or not even necessarily a Baha'i kid, but for a kid to kind of be entering into that milieu. Yeah, you know, students encounter a lot of... uh a lot of very materialistic thinking on a university campus, in all honesty. So there are really... Now, you mean, when you say materialistic thinking, are you talking about like, hey, buy more stuff? Or are you thinking materialistic like there's no spirituality, there's only uh, kind of economic powers, kind of more Marxism? Yeah, I'm thinking about what I would call intellectual materialism. You know, really comprehensive sort of theories and just assumptions at play often in many academic environments again like about human nature that you know this this idea that humans are like basically sort of self-interested animals motivated you know competing for scarce resource and all these things like that's been a mainstay in a lot of academic disciplines throughout the 20th century it's starting to change a little bit 
there's some, I think, fresh new thinking, but a lot of it's still at the margins. You know, still in most introductory to economics classes, for instance, the model of human nature you study is the sort of rational, self-interested, you know, self-maximizing individual. And, you know, interesting enough, there's like data now, there's empirical evidence being demonstrated that the more economists study that model, the more self-interested their own behavior comes. So, ah. so that would be an example of what I mean by intellectual materialism. But it's not just economics. And of course, it's not that, that the discipline of economics doesn't have a lot of rich, valid, important insight. But many academic disciplines and theories today have what I would consider a fairly impoverished view of human nature at the center of them. And if you think otherwise, you're naive. You can be, yeah. Or superstitious, right? Yeah, yeah. So... But you were, and you also, this goes hand in hand with what you were talking about with the media earlier. That if you're if you're seeing media where it's a bunch of self interested, kind of greedy animals seeking, you know, you know, their self interest above all, and then you're studying the same thing that you enter the world, and that completely, that's it's completely your your mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So students encounter this in, on university campuses in really profound ways. It uh, it can shake their sense of optimism. I mean, you know what? I, I spent a lot of time in my classes today trying to establish a sense of hope in the future in my students. Ah, it's, it's they're pretty a, pessimistic. Very pessimistic. And a lot of that is reinforced by some of the things that they're studying. Also things that are happening in the world around them. Um, so, you know, what kind of historical perspective might might engender some hope and optimism in the future? That becomes an important question that most academics shy away from. Yeah, so I mean, those would be examples of what I'm talking about. That uh, I think students need some, ideally, some sort of accompaniment and to be part of of rich, deep conversations. But you know, at the center of the Baha'i faith is is an effort to reconcile science and religion. That these two are not in conflict. There are, of course expressions of religion that have emerged historically, certain kinds of fundamentalism and, and superstition and irrationalism that uh, need to be left behind. They're part of our collective immaturity, so to speak. So we need to both challenge ourselves in terms of our you know, understanding what it means to be religious, to have spiritual views, to think about spiritual truths. We need to challenge ourselves in that front. But we also need to challenge you know, some of the things that that scientific and philosophical discourse assumes which just sort of preclude the possibility that there are other dimensions to human nature Hmm. Hmm. well said how does your children's book ruth sees a truth fit into this yeah so when i was writing my first book beyond the culture contest my own two daughters were i don't know probably five and seven years old or something and I used to try to figure out how to explain to them what I was working on and the ideas I was working with. And at one point, I, I sort of wrote down a little narrative in rhyming verse and used to read it to them, and they enjoyed it. And then I didn't think too much of it. They kind of grew up, and at one point, uh, one of my daughters said, Hey, Dad, you should publish that thing you used to read to us. So, so I shopped around and, and found a publisher for it. And, but basically, it's a way of trying to... to capture some of these ideas about beyond the social contest in ways that are accessible to kids so, so that young people can start moving beyond the culture of contest. And uh, 
what can Baha'is learn from the discourses of society, having elevated conversations, and what can the world learn from the Baha'is? Yes, that's a good question. You know, Baha'is are trying to participate in social discourses in thoughtful ways, with humility and a posture of learning. We have things to offer. We have lots to learn. I think, you know, the more we engage with thoughtful people everywhere, the more we can form partnerships uh, that I would describe as sort of learning our way forward together. You know, we, we're entering into a period in human history that in which all the old systems are breaking down. They don't work. We need to reinvent ourselves. We need to reinvent the human experience, so to speak, you know, human conditions. But we don't know how. We don't have a roadmap. We don't have a blueprint. We have to learn our way forward. We have to like generate insight and knowledge about how to live in ways we've never done before. Baha'is are not going to do that alone. We're not, you know, so arrogant as to think we have all the answers. But we do have some things to offer and much to learn alongside others who are interested in the same project. And you talked about that in terms of like the education of women and girls, which is something I've talked a bit about on this podcast because I'm involved with it with uh, Lee Day in Haiti. But, you know, the Baha'i Faith was from the get-go the organization that was saying, hey, the way to, best way to change the world is to educate women and girls. And then that became kind of a popular way of thinking around 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, I mean, you know, Baha'u'llah was writing in in the mid and late 1800s that if we can only, if we can't educate all of our children or if a community can't educate all of our children, it should prioritize the education of the girls. That was complete 180 degrees opposite to what many cultures, most cultures were doing, probably all cultures. Um, and yeah, so when like this whole international development discourse emerged after World War II, this is one of the basic principles Baha'is brought to the table, brought to the discourse, was we need to focus on the education of girls. And uh, we weren't the only ones thinking that, but we were certainly some of the earliest and most consistent voices uh, advocating that. And the development world has, since that time, sort of empirically demonstrated that, in fact, this is like the single most important investment you can make in, a, in the development of a community is educating the girls. So that's an example of Baha'is participating in a discourse, trying to contribute to the evolution of thought in constructive ways. And do you have a favorite Baha'i quote that kind of sums up the work you're doing? Uh, gosh, it, there are a few, but you know, one that, that always comes to mind is there's this beautiful passage, Baha'u'llah says, he who is your Lord, the all-merciful, cherisheth in his heart the desire to see the entire human race as one soul in one body. And this one soul in one body, this metaphor that Baha'u'llah returns to again and again in different contexts is, I think, very powerful because it implies if we can move beyond the culture of context, if we can rethink human relations, find like new ways of living together that, that value diversity, uh, that overcome conflict, that in fact, we will, we will become something that transcends our, you know, merely our sort of uh, what we all individually bring to the table. So I mean, Baha'u'llah uses this, this, this analogy of the human body. We're all like cells and organs within the body that diversity of cells and organs is actually what enables the human body 
to give rise to consciousness mm. without all of the diversity of, of our internal parts, so to speak. Right, the aisles of loggerheads. <laughs> yeah, without the, the diversity spleen. inside the human body, we couldn't give, you know, human consciousness would not have emerged. So when Baha'u'llah says that he desires to see all of human society as one soul and one body, the implication is that if we learn to harmonize our diversity, our relationships, uh, in fundamentally cooperative ways and coordinate our efforts, we will give rise to a form of civilization that is uh, beyond anything we've yet experienced. That is to the sort of uh, material aspects of our, our existence, what, what like the soul is to the body. Oh, that's beautiful. And what are, what are your main spiritual struggles right now? I ask every guest, like, what are they, what are they most struggling with in their life? spiritually on a, in your in your personal spiritual journey hmm. or Bahai journey yeah. that's a good question i mean i'm you know, full of them I'm yeah full of them, yeah well living in the u.s today just really honestly the u.s is like devouring itself it's tearing itself apart it's it's can be hard to get out of bed in the morning and sort of you know go to work in in environments that are becoming increasingly polarized divisive the sort of breakdown of trust, the rise of, you know, increase in, in suspicion. And it's, uh, you know, it's happening at a national scale, but it's also happening in, in institutions of all kinds. So it's a huge challenge to figure out how to sort of navigate that, how to stay optimistic, how to engage as constructively as possible how to try to work towards unity and, and healing and advancement uh, in what can often be sort of hostile, challenging, dysfunctional environments. I, I think that's a huge test that weighs on me spiritually, emotionally, as it does, I think, lots of other people. Well, we're we're in trouble if you with someone <laughs> with your insight has trouble getting out of the bed in the morning, going into their toxic work environment. Then, uh, uh, so what what message of hope can you give the listener? What what, what do you draw on to to help you move through uh, both a toxic work environment or difficult, contentious work environment? Let me just say, and and the contentious toxic atmosphere that's in the United States mm-hmm. right now in general. And, and around the world, too, obviously. But, you know, I, I try to step way back and, and to think about a sort of broad historical perspective. And, and what we're seeing in the world today, as I understand it, and I think this reflects a sort of general Baha'i perspective, is that humanity is moving forward. You know, two steps forward, one steps back. It's not a simple or linear process. But we are making progress on various fronts, as difficult as it is. And... The, the sort of rising tide of commitment to justice, to peace, to you know, living in harmony with our planet, really generations of young people are increasingly sort of wedded to these ideals. And yet those ideals threaten certain segments of society who have sort of constructed hierarchies of privilege around themselves. And I think what we're seeing right now in the world it are certain forms of like backlash against this progressive sort of currents of change. I kind of liken it to, you know, uh, you can't stop the tide in the ocean from rising. 
if you've built a sand castle on the beach, the tide's going to eventually take it out. So, that, you know, there are people who have built these like sand castles of privilege uh-huh. throughout history. Mm-hmm. And now the tide is coming in to sweep them away. And so they're like trying to literally like throw up walls of sand around and to protect them. It's a losing, you know, it's a, it's a losing <laughs> proposition. But they're becoming inc- increasingly frenetic and often violent uh, and... So we're seeing that right now. It, there's a lot of ugliness in the world as a result of that. But in some ways, I think we can take heart that the tide is coming in. That doesn't mean we should passively sit back and watch it. I mean, the tide is us. The tide is people with agency working for change. Mm. I think we should take heart that growing numbers of people will not settle for the, the oppressive and unjust and unjust sort of patterns of the past. People want peace. They want social harmony. They want their children to grow up, whatever group, whatever background they're from, and and have the full opportunity to realize their latent potential to to contribute back to the betterment of humanity. We're moving slowly in that direction. There are forces in society resisting that movement. Uh-huh. And we need to be confident that, that this movement will advance. The tide will rise. And, and, and we also, we don't need to worry about the sandcastles. They're going to fall. Like, we don't need to dismantle them. But the tide is taking them away. All right. Very well said. And on that note, what a perfect way to end this discussion. It's been a real privilege. I've, we've been talking about having you on the show for a couple of years now. I'm so glad that we, we both ended up in white salmon washington (laughs) on the columbia river gourd and gorge in a cabin uh on what turned out to be a pretty beautiful day definitely uh thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me it's been a pleasure thank you thanks for listening to baha'i blogcast hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation check out more fun baha'i stuff on baha'iblog.net thank you so much Good night.